0: The question I want to answer this morning is simply this, Uh, what does it take for a church family to genuinely care and love one another until Christ comes back? Um, I think that our church family is something that is special. Uh, I love our church family. Um, A lot of folks ask questions like, hey, do you have friends outside of the church family? I guess I do have friends outside of the church family, but you are my friends. You are like our church family here. We don't have close relatives in the area, and so you are our family at that level. You are our friends. We're friends to one another, and this is a picture that is presented throughout Scripture that the church is meant to be a body that comes together, a family that comes together. There's many pictures throughout the New Testament that expresses how our relationship with Christ brings us into unity with one another. And so it just seemed good with baptism this morning, communion this morning, our fellowship, to have one of these sermons in between our study in Galatians and Christmas being a sermon that focuses on this theme of Christian unity and brotherly love. So what will it take For a church family to genuinely care and love, be preserved with unity until Christ comes back. I'd like to answer that question by answering three other questions. So these three questions will be our outline for this morning. Number one is, what is the practice of Christian love? Number two, what is the purpose of Christian love? And number three, what is the power of Christian love? So the practice, the purpose, and the power. So point number one, or question number one is, what is the practice of Christian love? if we are going to be that church family that is preserved like a New Testament church should be, what is that practice of Christian love supposed to look like if we were to have eyes for it with one another? Well, Josh read the passage from 1 John chapter 3. He says this, by this we know love, by this. And the question is, what is the this that makes us know love? And so he follows it up In the second phrase, this is how we know love. Here's the next phrase. That he, and that he that he's talking about is Jesus himself. That Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. All right, so we know what love is because we have the supreme example in Jesus himself who laid down his life. That phrase... Where, Jesus, where John says Jesus laid down his life, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that that phrase, laid down his life, four words right there, takes up several chapters of the New Testament. It's through the Gospels that you see Jesus not having his life taken from him. Make no mistake about that. Jesus was not somebody who was a martyr and had his life taken from him. He was a willing sacrifice where, as you read the Gospels, you see him with a gaze set on Jerusalem, telling his disciples three times leading up to Jerusalem, I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to go to Jerusalem to Jerusalem, to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Jesus laying down his life was an act of volition. He was in complete control of this. He intentionally journeyed towards Jerusalem. And then you know that the night, the night after the Last Supper, when he went outside of Jerusalem, down through the valley, up onto the Mount of Olives, into that place called the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying with his disciples there. The soldiers come And Jesus actually moves towards the soldiers as, if you will, act one of laying down his life. Back across the valley into Jerusalem to be falsely accused by the council. Then by the chief priest. Then by Pilate. Then by Herod. Then by Pilate again. Led out of Jerusalem later in the day with a cross on his back having been beaten. Goes to Golgotha. And surrenders himself onto the cross there. And in the words of Isaiah 53, you think, here is the lamb led to the slaughter. Jesus willfully walking down that road, fixed towards Golgotha in order to lay his life down. And why did he do it? Why did Jesus lay down his life? It was God's will that he do this for the forgiveness of our sins. And this act of him self-willingly going to the cross and laying down his life, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, is a demonstration of his love for me. He gave himself and loved me. Loved, himself, loved and gave himself for me. In Ephesians 5.20, or 5.22 and following, Paul is talking about marriage. And he says, hey, just remember, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and had his life taken no he gave his life for the church so John wants us to see by this we know what love is that he willingly laid down his life for us and one of John's main themes throughout his book is the practice now Now that we know what love is, now that we have the example in front of us, now John's theme in his little book there at the end of the Bible is, how are Christians supposed to relate to one another? How are Christ followers, the Christ who went to the cross and laid down his life, how are Christ followers supposed to relate to one another if they have Christ dwelling within them? And right here. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Now, look at verse 17. John asks a legitimate question. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes up his heart against him. I just That phrase just sticks out to me. How does God's love abide in him? All right, so a Christian is in a situation of need, a brother or sister in Christ that you see here, know about in your local church, you see the need, and within the heart of a Christian, there is often a response that comes from within. It's the heart. The heart is the control center of our affections. And John says, If you close the door of your heart like a vault at the bank and you take that heavy door and emotions and compassion and pity and you see something, you're like, I should be moving towards that. But you close the heart like the vault door at the bank. Boom. We're going to lock it all in. If you close your heart to that person, then how can you say that God abides in you? Matthew Poole, he's a Puritan from the 1600s. He wrote it this way. If the love of God in us should make us lay down our lives for the brethren and we be not willing in their need or their necessity and our own ability to relieve them, how plain is the case that it, the love of God, is not in us? All right, so... John's point here is let's be consistent. By this, we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. Hey, if you see your brother and sister in need, don't close your heart. Don't close the vault door to your heart. Let it remain open. And John's point here is not, he's not picking on people right now, he's not trying to disprove or have people doubt their faith it's quite the opposite. It's like, hey, this is inconsistent. You know this. So let's move in the direction that is consistent. So he moves into verse 18. So little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, our love must be more than a mere passing word. Our love for one another is going to include labor that will be known and received in the lives of others. It might be us in our labor coming alongside of another person and bearing their burdens that you see. It might be the practice of spending time with an individual and working through the challenge that they're facing. It might be the act of coming alongside of someone, hearing their pain and praying with them when they're struggling. It might be pursuing and including someone who is lonely. It might be that you hear they're down to their last 50 bucks and they just need some help this month. And when that is done, it is us following Christ, who willingly moved towards the opportunity and said, this is what I'm doing. I am moving towards it. I'm laying down my life. And John's point is, this is what it looks like for brothers and sisters in the church to practice love. We move toward the need, not away from it. So the practice of brotherly love is the active and sincere care for one another that lays aside oneself. In order to help others and we know this kind of laying aside ourselves kind of love because we are Christ followers we follow Jesus who loved us that's the practice of Christian love so question number one the practice of Christian love we've discussed it don't be surprised if this week God gives us an opportunity to practice Christian love with one another. It's kind of like God's timing. When he presents truth in front of us, he often follows up with an opportunity for us to act on that truth. All right, right, question number two. What is the purpose of Christian love? What is the purpose of Christian love? I'd like you to take your Bibles and go back a few pages to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 we're looking at verses 1 through 3. We've looked at the practice. Now, what is this practice supposed to achieve? What what is the purpose here? Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 1 and following, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I'm in verse 2 right now. So you've been called by Christ to himself. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of that calling? Well, there's going to be all humility, verse 2, and gentleness with patience. Now look how this escalates. And he says, we are going to be bearing with one another in love. Okay, so that's what we've talked about. We know that love has to be there, but what is the purpose? Where are we going with all of this? Look at the last phrase of verse three. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The purpose of Christian love is to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us. And when you think about that, that phrase, the unity of the Spirit, that's an interesting phrase. It's an interesting even picture when you think about it. Let's talk about the Spirit for just a moment. Who is the Spirit? Every Christian who has trusted in Christ as their Savior for the forgiveness of sins has the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit in him or her. If you are a Christian this morning, you have God's indwelling presence in you right now. The Spirit has also opened up our spiritual eyes and given us a desire for Jesus as our Savior. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the natural person does not understand the spiritual things, but only those who have the Spirit have their eyes open to understand that. The Spirit also, since he is indwelling us, he convicts us of sin. Not only does he convict us of sin, but according to Galatians chapter 5, he is the one who is producing spiritual fruit like love, joy, peace, and so on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and following, we are told that since the Spirit is indwelling us, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So when you think about us as individuals who have been assembled together in a local body, we are an expression of the larger church of all Christians everywhere. We come together and we're expressing our faith in Jesus Christ. Here is the logical thought. There ought to be a unity that takes place among us because the Spirit indwells each one of us. To state it negatively, the Spirit of God in Christians is not supposed to be hacked up by divisions and opinions among us. We're to love one another with an eagerness, Paul says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us. So I think perhaps a way of poorly illustrating this, I couldn't think of anything else, and I'll, there's my sort of front-end apology for this illustration. But think about a divorce right now. You have a mom and a dad. The child who belongs to both the mom and dad does not want to be torn and divided between parents who are fighting with each other. And so you could say that some parents would come together and say it's our responsibility to maintain a love and a unity with one another so that that child might be in the bond of peace between us. And so I say it's a poor illustration because oftentimes you think of the parents as being the older mature and the child being the less immature. Here we are, the children and the spirit being the more mature, okay? We have a responsibility where we ought to think Godward, upward, like in a spirit-driven way that we have this stewardship of God's presence among us And we have to maintain that presence in unity with one another. The unity through the spirit that we have is not supposed to be severed by our differences or our opinions. Perhaps another way of looking at this is bring two cinder blocks together. Go out to a construction site and you'll see these walls going up. And on top of one cinder block is going to be some wet cement here comes the next block. It has to be placed on top of that. And so that, that wall gets built up with all of these individual blocks in it, the cement being the glue agent. And when you stand back, you see, oh, here's a uniform wall. Here's something that has come together. There's unity there. That cement would be okay. This is our responsibility. This is our love that we are supposed to be sort of bound to one another, bearing with one another in love. Maybe a better way of looking at it is an old stone fireplace where there are so many different stones, none of them are the same in those old stone fireplaces. And yet they have that mortar and that mud that's between them. And you stand back and you can see, oh, this was meant to be put together. This has a purpose here. It's, it's all unified. And here we are as unique individuals. I can look out and, I don't know, maybe there's some twins here today, but I don't see anybody that's exactly the same. And yet, Paul says, make sure you're bearing with one another in love. That's going to be the agent between us, the binding agent between us so that there's unity of the spirit among us. That's our task of bearing with one another in love. And the purpose is, God, this is your design that we would have this unity among us. Let's ask some questions under this point. What causes divisions among Christians? What causes divisions among Christians? the book of James, there was a lack of unity because the believers were dividing up into pockets of social status. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, says this, My brothers, show no partiality, like, don't be divided, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions, separations among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? And the reason I like this passage is because it's happening under one roof. By that, I mean that this church that James is talking to, he can almost like peer into the doors of the church and say, oh, there's a lack of unity in that church based upon the way that they are relating to themselves. They're relating to themselves according to economic status. So that kind of makes you wonder, how would that church that sort of treats people according to their wealth in better ways, how would they have welcomed Jesus and the apostles if they walked through the door? Jesus would have walked through the door and may have looked very tired because he had no place to lay his head. Paul was on the brink of poverty so often. Peter, he walks up to a blind or a lame beggar and he says, hey, I don't even have money to give to you. But what I can give to you is a miracle of healing, and he heals the man. What if the beggar walks in to this church? What if the people whom Jesus interacted with and healed walked into any of these churches? Would they have separated Jesus, the apostles, the disciples, those who were healed into, hey, you get to stand over there or you get to sit at my feet from others we have a task, and I, folks, I think we're doing well in this. This is not a rebuke by any means. It's just an awareness, I think, and saying we want to trust the Bible here. We have a task to, to overcome cultural lines and boundaries that naturally separate people. And I pause there because of this. Several years ago, I was talking with some pastors, and one of the comments, not pastors at our church one of the goals or endeavors was, how can we minister to a group of people who are certainly known for their poverty? And the response from one of the pastors was, that's just not our kind of church. And I just, I was like, that just doesn't set well. And then you think, okay, well, what kind of church do you want to be? A church that is known for middle class on up and what's going to happen when God saves somebody and sends that person into that church who makes minimum wage what's going to happen when they walk into the church and the leadership of that church has sort of crafted or shaped that church to meet the desires and the needs of one economic status like that does not set well now Maybe I misunderstood the whole thing, but I just had to, like, I don't don't know what to say. I I can't, like, really interact with that comment that was just made. So, as an awareness, I hope that we as a church along the lakeshore, where there is naturally going to be sort of a middle class, upper middle class, I hope that we as a church would have the humility to look both ways at each other. I hope our folks as a church family would be able to have the humility to meet with those who don't have much. And yet, what if what if one of the DeVos family members walked in? That'd be kind of intimidating, wouldn't it? Do we have the humility to look past status and say, okay, I don't know where the DeVos' stand with Christ, so I'm kind of rambling right now, forgive me. But let's say somebody of that status walked in with that kind of, would we have the humility to say, hey, you're a brother or sister in Christ, I'm going to love on you because you are a brother or sister in Christ. You see, the point is that the distinctions were made based on these statuses, James is saying, do not do that. All right, second um, possible division in a church, is what Paul calls in Romans 14, uh, matters of faith. And in that chapter, what you have going on is individual Christians seriously and convictionally believing that certain things were right for them to either refrain from or practice in. Romans 14, you've got issues like meat. Um, Some believed that meat was okay to eat, It's probably connected to the same thought in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 where that meat could have been offered to idols and the Christians were saying, some of the Christians were saying, we can't partake in that meat. Paul gets into some issues later on with certain days. He even gets into matters with wine in that chapter. All right, here's what he says in verse 8. Who are we? He says, if we live, we live to the Lord And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So what what Paul is doing in this chapter is saying, okay, I want to call you to something higher than these issues that matter to you. And they are matters of faith. And it's such an interesting chapter because Paul can say, hey, this is an issue of faith. And if, it, if it's not issuing from faith, like, refrain from it. Okay. Practically, I don't know that any of you are struggling with a fillet that's been offered to Zeus. Like that, we just don't have that problem today. Or I don't know, I, there might be some differing views on Sabbath. And, but for the most part, we're not struggling with Jewish holidays. What would be the matters of faith that a church like ours would wrestle with? Matters where you you say, I believe this is the right thing to do, therefore I'm going to do it. Don't ask me not to do it, I'm going to do it. Or I'm going to hold to this. All right, I think one of the obvious ones for us is the forms of schooling, right? We have sort of deep convictions in our church of hey, this is the way I think we should raise our children, and we're going we're gonna to follow this form of schooling. It would be wrong for somebody to come along and say, now, you really need to back away from that as an issue of, of faith. And, and the parents are like, no, this is how I disciple my children. This is what I think is right and best. Okay, And Paul is saying, all right, we live to the Lord. We die to the Lord. We are the Lord's. These things can exist inside of a church and there still be unity? How about the political outworkings of local government? You can see the signs in people's yards with OI and a thumbs up. You can see signs in people's yards with OI and a circle and a line slash through it. I've had questions from both sides. Paul's point in Romans 14 is not to flatline everyone's personal opinion. Everyone was still going to have their personal opinion. He realizes that these things are are weighty and they're heavy on people. Paul's point is this. Do we see ourselves with those issues living to the Lord, dying to the Lord? We are the Lords. You can have matters of faith that you believe in and you still can cling to the Lord. That's how You have to maintain unity in him. Romans 14, verse 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And his point wasn't, let's solve the issue over meat. Let's solve the issue over holidays. Let's solve the issue over drink. That was not his point in Romans 14. His point was, here's what the kingdom of God is. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's pursue the unity among one another in the Holy Spirit. So the Christian life is not about agreement on matters that we are free to disagree upon. We can't be that church that finds its unity based on secondary, tertiary levels, or else we'll just be the Michigan Wolverine Church. You know, like, okay, you got to be a fan, Go Wolverines, go all the way, let's go. But you take your opinion and you know it. We can't be the school bond church, whether you vote for it or not. We can't be that church. We can't be, this is the schooling church of only these, this, this form of schooling. We live to the Lord, we die to the Lord, we are the Lord's. And so we surrender to him and we leave room for these matters of faith to be different among us. Okay, a third area of division and I'll move through this quickly, is just what I'll call it, Yodia Syntyche issues. Yodia Syntyche issues. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. I mean, this is, these ladies have labored side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel. What a great reputation. And yet... There is something that's happening in their lives where a wedge has come between them. And so Paul comes to his true companion here and says, now, help them to agree. But Paul doesn't talk about the disagreement. We don't even know that they were supposed to agree about the disagreement. Where are they supposed to, like, hook their lines to? Agreement in the Lord. Have the same mind or have this agreement in the Lord. And so you can see that there are the potential for divisions. We could keep going through the New Testament to see example after example. I mean, just go through the book of 1 Corinthians to see how there were divisions and lack of unity in that book there. But the call is for Christians to have this perspective where we we believe in who Jesus is, the gospel here. And there are certain matters, don't get me wrong, there are certain matters that are clearly presented in the Bible as morally right, morally wrong. We cannot accept that which is morally wrong. We follow the word of God, it is our authority. And then there are these matters like meat offered to idols. Okay? Our responsibility is to bear with one another in love with the goal of maintaining that unity. And really, I think one of the things that I hear from you is appreciation for our church because I think we do have strengths in this area. I really do. I can sit with many of you and I can hear that some of you are soft Arminians and some of you are strong Calvinists. There are some who would prefer a song service with more traditional hymns, others with more contemporary stuff. Talked about schooling earlier. We don't need to talk about that. We have differences that are just in existence among us, but we're not going to build a church based on our mutual agreements over the horizontal stuff. Let's continue to rise above that and protect the unity of the Spirit in Christ's church that he loved and gave himself for. And we do that by bearing with one another in love for the glory of God. So the purpose of Christian love is the unity of the spirit of God who is dwelling in and among us all right third and finally what is the power for Christian love we could find several questions or answers to this how do Christians genuinely love one another we could go to Galatians 5 and talk about the spirit we could go to John 15 where Jesus says I'm the vine you're the branches without me you can do nothing including love one another but where I'd like for you to go is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 I don't know if I have that on the screen or not. This All right, so go back to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, and we'll close with this. Paul says this in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, okay, so we're all in the same boat here. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, so... This would probably be like the church at Philippi, other churches in that area. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, notice what happened. They were afflicted, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a act, in a deed of love. What was it? A wealth of generosity on their part. So the churches of Macedonia were collecting an offering because over a thousand miles away, the saints in Jerusalem were going through a famine and food prices had spiked and they needed some help. Paul says, I want you to see these churches up in the Macedonia area who are extremely poor, that's noted, but what is also out in front is that they have an abundance of joy, an abundance of joy. When you think about that, Paul is saying their abundance of joy is happening because the grace of God, verse 1, is at work in them. They are are soaking themselves up in who God is. They are treasuring Jesus Christ as their Savior for the forgiveness of sins. They are holding to the promise of eternal life, knowing that they've escaped God's judgment, and that brings them this fountain of joy. Have you ever seen a grumpy, joyless person love others very well? They can't. Grumpy, joyless people are seeking their own pleasures All the time they absorb conveniences and maybe they have a smile when they get something they want but a joyless person does not sacrificially love other people well the christian man woman or child that has joy in god that's the person who can overflow with acts of love so the power of christian love here is in an ongoing, meaningful relationship that a Christian has with God where they're saying, my joy will not, cannot be found in anything here. It is only found, God, in my relationship with you. So the power for Christian love is an overflow of a joyful relationship that we have with God. That's why God has to be at the center. So Christians... Here's the task that's in front of us. We have to keep God central. We have to keep our relationship with God the most important thing because out of that, we find the power to love one another. With that, we have a goal for our love. That goal, scripturally speaking, is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And what's it going to look like? Very practically, First John says, "We're going to love in deed and in truth. We will have acts in which we have to lay down our lives. We have to open up our hands to love one another. And when we know that love of Christ, we're freed, then we can do that. What's going to keep a church together? What's going to keep a church together is this abundance of joy, maintaining the spirit and willing and surrendered to acts of love. Let's pray.